from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 14th. Today, a secret plan to arrest migrant families, new laws bringing the Bible to public schools, and the man who could become the first first gentleman. About a month ago, the acting director of ICE, of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Ron Vitello, had his nomination suddenly yanked by the White House without explanation. Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security for The Post. There was a lot of confusion about why they would have done that with someone who had already been voted through the committee and was headed toward a full confirmation vote. It wasn't until the following morning when President Trump was getting on his helicopter and someone asked him about it that he said yes, that he had in fact decided to pull the nomination that he wanted to go in a tougher direction. We're going in a little different direction. Ron's a good man, but we're going in a tougher direction. That firing was the first in a series of abrupt departures at the Department of Homeland Security. After Vitello came Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, and then the head of the Secret Service and the department's deputy secretary. But after all of that, Nick still wanted to know, what was the president talking about when he said that he wanted to go in a tougher direction? Ron Vitello was a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Border Patrol. It wasn't like some softy, you know, D.C. lawyer that had been put in there. He was, you know, a guy who had spent his career in law enforcement and did not, you know, in any way have a reputation for being someone who wasn't tough. So this kind of mystery was out there, like what was really behind this? So it wasn't until just in the last few days that we, we finally kind of got to the bottom of it. What did you find out and how did you find that out? So this is something that I have been after for several weeks trying to figure out what happened. Was there something more than just the president's kind of gut feeling that things weren't going well and he wanted a shakeup? And what we finally found out was that there has been this plan that was first conceived back in September of last year. And the goal was to go out and get what are called final removal orders, basically deportation orders against thousands of parents and kids who were already in the interior of the United States, and then have ICE agents stage a very kind of dramatic, highly visible arrest operation that would round up large numbers of people in you know a single show of force. And the idea was that that would have a you know a deterrent effect on families thinking about coming. So, so this was a plan for basically mass deportations. Well, this was a plan for mass arrests that would lead to mass deportations. But the goal here was for the administration was to try to make a dent in this big surge in the number of families who are coming and who have already been you know, released into the interior of the United States and who they say continue to fail to show up for their court hearings. So how far along was this plan in terms of actually being put into place? So this plan was conceived by Stephen Miller, the president's top immigration advisor, in conjunction with officials at the Department of Justice and at DHS. And it was all the way back in September, in the aftermath of the zero tolerance family separations, that they were looking at this increase in the number of families coming and wanted to do something forceful and dramatic to try to create a a new deterrent effect. And so 
you know, these conversations, um, you know, were, were held by, by senior leaders in these agencies for several months. And by January, the Department of Justice had gotten deportation orders for about 2,500 parents and children who were going to be on this target list in 10 cities. And now it was up to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to ICE, to go out and make those arrests. And ICE worked on its plan for actually executing these deportation orders. So that requires something very complicated, which are called at-large arrests. And that's where ICE agents go into a neighborhood, they knock on doors, they have to control access. So it's the kind of operation that can easily go wrong, that generates a lot of controversy, that almost inevitably is going to you know, end up on somebody's cell phone camera and typically requires like a significant amount of resources and, and planning and coordination. So the problem was when this target list went to Ron Vitello, the acting director of ICE, he had concerns about whether or not it was finalized, that everything had been thought through. He felt that, you know, that it wasn't quite ready to go. And he also wanted to tell Secretary Nielsen. He, he thought that the leadership at DHS was going to have to go out and talk about why they had done this publicly. Because a lot of people would be up in arms to see these mass arrests in cities around the country. That's right. This is something that was inevitably going to generate controversy and some pushback. And for the administration part, that was the point. They wanted to go out and make, you know, and generate a big display of force to show that, look, we're not going to just you know, let all these families that have been ordered deported, we're not going to just let them stay in the United States. We're going to send a message that, that you know, we're tough and we're not going to allow this. And did they ultimately inform Secretary Nielsen about so it? So then they bring in Secretary Nielsen and she has a lot of the same concerns. How are we diverting resources away from the border in the middle of this emergency at the border with so many people coming across? There's, there were concerns about um, what, what happens with U.S. citizen children Parents who may not have legal status, but the children may be legal here. And so what do you do with them? There were concerns about the possibility that some of these families would be separated. What if some of the kids are at school or if they're at a, a, you know, another relative's house or something? With an operation of this size, with so many moving parts, it's almost inevitable that you would get some outcomes like that. Well, how are they going to handle those? And what do you know about how the White House responded to the fact that Vitello and Nielsen were both like, this plan has a lot of potential problems. Well, so, you know, one of the things that 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 came up was, you know, it wasn't that Nielsen and Vitello thought that it wasn't appropriate to be arresting families or to, you know, to, to pick up kids. It was something that had been done um, under previous administrations, although this plan was to do it on a really large and dramatic scale. They didn't object to it like on ethical grounds, but, you know, logistically, operationally, they, they had these concerns. In the meantime, Miller and the new acting director of ICE, Matt Albans, who at the time was the number two, were much more gung-ho on this idea. And they wanted to move fast. And their argument was that something had to be done now and that, you know, that this problem was only growing bigger and that it required, you know, really swift and decisive action. The other factor for Vitello was that he was also getting advice from within ICE that if he were to go forward like this, um, with an operation like this, that it could sink his nomination. That there would be a bunch of Democrats who would be like, this is an unacceptable plan and we have the power to derail the person who helped put it in place or put it into action. That's right. But that 
reluctance was interpreted within the White House in particular as, you know, not putting the president's best interests first. So this is the point where President Trump says, well, if they're not willing to execute this plan, then I don't want them in my administration and they're out. We don't know exactly what the what the president said, but but these conversations and the frustration with the reluctance of Fitello and Nielsen's doubts about this operation and their effort to kind of slow it down and say, wait a minute, let's make sure we're, you know, we've got all everything in order first, that, you know, that that hesitancy was immediately followed by their ouster from DHS. So it seems like from the perspective of of Secretary Nielsen and maybe from Vitello's perspective that they didn't want a repeat of the zero tolerance family separation policy where they ended up putting something out, having to defend it and then take it back immediately. But it seems like President Trump's perspective on that was it was a mistake to take that back, that we should have just kept going with that. And then this is a new opportunity to put in another zero tolerance policy that makes a big splash. Essentially, yeah. I mean, you know, we've heard President Trump lament now several times that he had to pull back from the family separations, that he thought that it was effective. And so here was an operation that was designed to go out and pick up thousands of parents and children who have, who are, you know, who are living here, who don't have legal status, who, who judges have already ordered out of the country, and to do it in a really showy and dramatic way. Um, that they thought would kind of send this message of toughness and 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 I think politically would you know would would appeal to the president's supporters so now that Secretary Nielsen and Vitello and a bunch of other people at DHS are out, could this be a plan that the president is able to put in place? Yeah, this plan is still on the table. I would not be surprised if they attempt to implement it once they have new leadership at Iceland uh, in place. The concerns about the complications of this, the logistics of doing it, remain uh, a big factor. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it takes a little longer for them to put together or if they scale it back. But my understanding is that they're not pulling back from the plan. They still think it's a good idea and a necessary enforcement step to kind of get the results that they want. And keep in mind, you know, the problem that they are facing, this border crisis, continues to get worse for them. You know, we had 109,000 people come into U.S. custody in April, and the past um, few days of May, the numbers have gone even higher. So we're really, you know, facing kind of unprecedented levels of families coming across the border, and everything that they've tried to date has not worked. Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security for The Post. Wait, I thought that that religion isn't something that's supposed to be taught in public schools. Well, religion can't be you can't have persuasive religious instruction. You can't tell someone this is true, this is what you should believe. But you can teach the content. Julie Zosmer is a religion reporter at the Post. And the reason why she's talking about religion in public schools is because she's been reporting on Bible classes. Bible classes that tow a very fine legal line. The Supreme Court actually considered this question back in the 60s. 
first in the case of Engel versus Vitali in 1962. The first question at President Kennedy's news conference deals with the Supreme Court decision that a New York school prayer violates constitutional separation of church and state. The court basically said you can't have school-sponsored prayer in public school. The uh, Supreme Court uh, has made its judgment. A good many people, uh, obviously, will disagree with it. Others will agree with it. But I think that uh, it is uh, important for us, if we're going to maintain our constitutional principle, that we uh, support uh, Supreme Court decisions even when we may not agree with them. And then, one year later, there came a case in Pennsylvania about Bible study. School District of Abington Township was the case, which I have always remembered since middle school because that's the township next door to the one I grew up in. (laughs) And so we learned about that Supreme Court case early on. For the record, I just love that Julie remembers this case from middle school. School District of Abington Township case said that you can't have Bible reading in the morning for the whole school as a religious activity because that's a devotional activity. But you can have a class on the content of the Bible and the meaning of it as long as you're not trying to convert children to a certain religion. And it turns out that this is an important distinction. How did you first think about writing this story? This one, credit goes to President Trump for bringing up this subject. Uh, He tweeted at the end of January, numerous states introducing Bible literacy classes, giving students the option of studying the Bible. Starting to make a turn back? Great! Great exclamation mark. And it set off a lot of questions from people who are not in states where Bible classes are very common in public schools, who are saying, what, Bible classes in in public schools? Yeah, what did he mean by that? Um, There's a law that passed in Kentucky a couple years ago that does encourage the school districts in Kentucky to teach Bible classes. And that law has sort of become the model for 10 other states that are currently looking at passing a bill like the one in Kentucky. So I thought I would like to go to Kentucky and see how it's working and to sit in one of these schools and watch the class and to tell readers, if your state passes a law like this, this is what it might look like. Okay, Jackson and Christian, you guys are six. I went to two high schools in Kentucky. First, I went to McCracken County High School in Paducah, Kentucky, which is on the western end of the state, just about on the Illinois border. Would you please grab your pens and pencils? We'll start right here with table one. Jimmy, Natalie, what's your first word there? Israelites. Everybody say Israelite. Israelite. Very good. What is an Israelite? The teacher in this class, because she's teaching the Bible as a work of literature, was always very careful to present the biblical figures not as people who existed or didn't exist, but as characters in a book. Please understand, folks, we are reading this story, we are reading the Exodus, we are reading this through the lens of literature. And she would say the characters, Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Esau. Um, In the storyline, it just continues right along, and that's what we're going to do. Uh, We're going to look at the descendants of Jacob, and then, of course, right back to our objective... What happened to Joseph's descendants? All right, everybody say Israelite. Israelite. We'll see how all that comes into play here. Uh, Table two, Charlie, take it away. The class is very focused on two things. One, on where do we see the Bible in our culture, in art, in movies, in music. And this spiritual that's referenced in your textbook, go down Moses, go down Moses, way down in Egypt land. So you've read it. 
And so while I was there, she was showing them a number of YouTube videos of African-American spirituals that obviously are drawn from the Exodus story. And my favorite, Louie, singing it. is very focused on making sure the kids know the story in the same way that you sometimes would have in a class on Shakespeare, perhaps, where the teacher is asking, what does that line mean? What does that line mean? What happened to that character? Do you remember another character like that? And kind of treating it as literature and something to be yes. interpreted and and a more critical approach to, to reading the, the I Bible. would not say that it's critical. Um, in fact, there were times while I was there and I was only there for a couple of days, but there were times that something that we might call biblical criticism or biblical history or archaeology came up and the teachers steered away from that pretty quickly. Um, they were starting to read the Exodus story while I was there and she had a moment of saying, sweet peeps, hey kids, the Exodus might not have really happened, but we don't have time to talk about that basically. This story is quite revered and perceived as a literal event that has occurred for some faith-based groups. We cannot ignore that, all right? History, however, uh, the historical evidence uh, does not necessarily, and that's a big word um, in regards to this exodus, does not necessarily support that. Uh, but some people view it as truth. Some people do not. Whether you do or whether you don't is up to you and your parents and your preachers, your um, your faith leaders uh, in that regard. But we are looking at it. After I sat in on the Bible class in McCracken County, uh, I want you to uh, uh, come back and, and look at... I also went to another high school in Barron County, Kentucky, and that one was which, very different. Which, which one... Which one can we illustrate with what has just been illustrated? In Barron County, they never really open the Bible. They're not actually focused on the text at all. They're focused on evidence of the Bible in the modern world. And then in parentheses, you can put the example of something that relates to these that helps us know that we still think about these in, in the 21st century, so to speak. In some ways, I think that it's more religious because it talks much more about values. When you're talking about the Bible in the modern world, the way that the teacher in Barron County does it, he's focusing on what can we get out of this in our lives. And he's really encouraging the students, day in and day out, to find some wisdom in the Bible. He steers clear of certain things that seem too doctrinal to him, which I found to be a very interesting choice, the way that he picked and chose. But he's definitely saying, look for the lesson here. All of those, but they are, there are a lot of things that we can apply wisdom, and, and we see that sort of thing and influence over time in which people don't really change, and we still, we still see these things applicable in the 21st century. Uh, so one of the classes that I went to, he was teaching the Beatitudes, the very, very famous blessings from the book of Matthew. And he kept saying, there's wisdom in this for the 21st century. There's lessons we can learn. If you, if you feel strongly about something and you stand for it, 
Which beatitude does that relate to? However, he didn't use the full text of the beatitudes. Some of them he just said, blessed are the pure in spirit, without the four. And I talked to him about this after class, and he said, well, I didn't want to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because then you get into a discussion about what is the kingdom of heaven, and that seems to lead you to religious questions. My next question was, well, do you teach the resurrection? Do you teach the crucifixion story when you get to that point in the Bible, which he was about to get to? And he says, of course. It's hard to see where he's drawing the line. So why are these kinds of Bible classes becoming a lot more popular? These state laws are being encouraged by an organization called Project Blitz. This is an effort of several evangelical organizations led by the Congressional Prayer Caucus to draft bills that they would like to see enacted and persuade state lawmakers to introduce them. They're very clear about their religious priorities. Their mission statement says they want to bring Christian values back to the public square. And they have encouraged state legislators across the country to put forward bills that encourage public schools to teach the Bible. So how many states right now are looking at legislation that would encourage these kinds of Bible classes that they have in Kentucky? This year, 10 states introduced laws basically modeled off of the Kentucky law. Uh, two of them in Mississippi and North Dakota have failed and are not going to pass. In Florida, they decided to postpone it. Um, but two of them in Georgia and Arkansas passed the state legislature and are just waiting for the governor to sign them into law in both of those states. There are also states that offer these classes without feeling a need to pass a law encouraging it, because this is legal with or without a state law. You don't need one of these laws in your state to start teaching a Bible class. However, the law provides a lot of encouragement and, depending on the state, might provide more resources. Even though you say that that the Supreme Court ruled relatively clearly on this, that an education about the Bible and academic education is something that is squarely uh, something that a public school can offer— it still seems like this is flirting with an issue that was already put to rest a long time ago that we don't espouse religion in public schools, that there is a separation of church and state. I don't know that it's ever been put to rest. These classes have existed just about as long as public schooling has existed. There's also other movements to get religion into the public schools that don't have anything to do with these classes. Project Blitz also has an effort right now to require public schools to have In God We Trust in the school, on the school building. Um, the question of where religion belongs in the public schools is definitely still an open question that we battle about every day in every state. After having seen both these classes, do you think that the places that are offering some kind of Bible literacy class in public schools, that they are towing the line that was set out where it's a class that is about the Bible but not a religious class? I think knowing the Bible is an outstanding knowledge base for any teenager in our society. I also think that towing the line day in and day out, making sure you're not violating the First Amendment if you're a teacher of one of these classes is incredibly difficult. And how you get through a 180-day school year without crossing that line at some point, that seems like a very hard question to me. I think some teachers probably cross it a whole lot more than others, 
But if you are the ACLU and you're looking for a lawsuit about this, I think you can probably find it in most of these classrooms if you look hard enough. Julie Zosmer is a religion reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. The man who might redefine the role of presidential spouse. Kasten Buttigieg is the husband of Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, who is running for president. I'm Ellen McCarthy, and I am a reporter in the style section. Cheston has had a really interesting life. He grew up in Traverse City, Michigan, and he grew up in a really salt-of-the-earth, working-class family, and he grew up feeling different. I would go shopping with mom and go to movies with mom and work around the house with mom, and my brothers would go hunting with dad, and they would work on trucks with dad, and they would be, you know, outside shopping with dad, and I would be inside reading Harry Potter or singing Celine Dion at the top of my lungs <laughs> while my mom and I are, you know, dusting the cabinets, so... Throughout his high school experience, he went to a public high school. He had a, he was one of a class of 500 kids, and he said out of that class of 500, there were zero out. And so he came out to his close friends the summer after graduation, and a lot of his friends said, yeah, we know, we love you anyway. And he had other friends who said, I love you, but I don't agree with this. We can't be friends anymore. The last people he told were the members of his family. I felt like I wouldn't be able to say the words aloud, so I wrote them a letter. Mm -hmm. And then I gave them the letter and sat there and watched them read it. Um, Where were they? Living room? Living room. I was sitting on the couch. Mom was sitting on the recliner. The windows open. Remember it vividly. There were a lot of tears, a lot of questions, and... Then ultimately, there was a stalemate. His parents never asked him to leave, but he did not feel like he could stay there. And so he did leave, and he moved out, and he kind of stayed with a friend, bumped around on couches a little bit, sometimes even slept in his car at the edge of his uh, community college parking lot, you know, just trying not to overstay his welcome with any one person um, and feeling really deeply lost. After a few months of being out on his own, his mom called him one day while he was driving and, and said to him, Chaston, will you come home? And he did. Chaston had been working as a junior high teacher, middle school teacher. He left that position in January to join the campaign full time. I don't know that he has an official title or role, but... My gosh, is he ever sort of on a charm offensive on this campaign, you know? I mean, he's attracted more than 300,000 Twitter followers. He's just really skilled at using memes and having the right quip and being funny and open and self-effacing and accessible uh, in a way that I think we haven't seen necessarily on the national political stage before. He's so tuned into pop culture. And, and so I think that his role is definitely one of humanizing Mayor Pete, who can sometimes come off as just being hyper-intellectual. I mean, I'm definitely like the Ian, you know, to his end, but... Um... 
I think that's why we like balance each other out so much, you know? Um, like really into comedy and like love Parks and Rec and 30 Rock and like really got Pete into Parks and Rec and Veep. <laughs> And to know that he's married to this guy who's, you know, watching 30 Rock every night and, you know, making people laugh, I think has been a real advantage for that campaign. Having sat down with Chastin, my expectation of him is that he's going to go on being Chastin. Like, I think his time of pretending to be something he's not or someone he's not is thoroughly over. Ellen McCarthy is a features reporter for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in our show by going to postreports.com. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.